Joey, this is going to get tough. I'm trying to not react to your reactions. I've been shaking my head this whole time. Usually I'm like, that's very interesting. I never thought of that. Or I love everything you just said. Well, listen, today is a new day and I don't like anything you just said. It's not you, Royce. It's the show. everyone to Krypton to Alderaan. I'm Joey, your Star Wars lover. And with me is Royish Good Looks. Hello, podcast. Hello, Joey. Happy Bendu Day, Royce. Happy. Is it Bendu Day or Tongs Day? I forget. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> We're the podcast. <laughs> We're the podcast that talks all about nerdy pop culture stuff, but it's mostly Star Wars. And this episode, we will be discussing the Mandalorian chapter 19, The Convert. But who was the convert? Don't answer yet, Royce. But first, you know, in the past week, we have had a lot of traffic on YouTube, lots of new views, lots of new subscribers, and lots of comments. And we really, really, really appreciate everyone who watches or listens. Thank you all so, so much for your support. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, consider subscribing to us on YouTube. You can also find us on any social media. Just search Krypton to Alderaan. Thank you all so much again. And let's talk about The Convert. Okay, Royce, ready? I'm ready. Actually, I don't know. I am a little bit scared, to be honest. I'm always <laughs> scared going into these, but let's do it. Let's do it anyway. <laughs> oh, man. Us being scared is becoming a theme for these episodes. <laughs> the Mandalorian Chapter 19, The Convert. On Coruscant, former Imperials find amnesty in the New Republic. That definitely happened. <laughs> Tongs Day, am I right? Listeners, viewers, this episode was long. This episode was dense. And we are going to dedicate our time and energy on focusing on a couple of themes. The major one, I think, being what's right and wrong? Or what's the right thing to do? which is, I think, a very prevalent uh, theme of this episode. So, forewarned, that's the way we're going into this. We're not going to be discussing every minute little detail because there was a lot. Royce, did you feel like there was a lot? I don't think I took more notes for any other Mando or Bad Batch episodes so far this year other than this one. I mean, the runtime was 59 minutes. Even the recap was long, Joey. I don't know if you noticed, but this had more information in the recap than the freaking season premiere. Put that in context. I did notice that, and I also... So this is one of the things that I don't want to talk about, but I did notice that, and but some of it was very, like, unnecessary. I mean, I hate to say that. I mean, everything has a purpose, but the client with Pershing and the line that he says about him, his excitement is like, okay, we get it, he likes cloning. But anyway, there was a lot of previously on, and whereas they skipped that for the premiere, which I'm still kind of baffled over. It makes sense that you'd have a long previously on for a long episode and they brought in different characters. So you had to remind people. So there's no problem there. But really interesting to note, previously on was long. The introduction was long. Nine minutes until you hear dun, 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 and you see the Mandalorian title card. Then the episode is another 50 minutes or so long. It might be the longest one in the Mandalorian so far. So a lot to talk about. Like Joey said, we're going to skip over some small details and we'll come back to them maybe on another deep dive episode. But 
Oh, let's get into what we can get into today. I'm scared. <laughs> I'm holding my head in my hands. And If only there was a way to clone us <laughs> and then each one of us could be doing different podcasts focusing on different elements of this specific episode. And then, of course, we would have to destroy the clones before they try to take over our lives. Anyway, <laughs> okay, speaking of the previous Leon, how do you feel about the reintroduction of Dr. Pershing, cloning scientist for the Empire? Yeah, so if we're going to talk about right and wrong, like, this guy was working with the client. He was experimenting on Grogu, but he had said multiple times, I'm here to, like, take care of the child. I'm not going to hurt it. I want to take care of him. So they kind of give you the impression that, you know, he's just a scientist and he's doing his research, which he sort of says when he's talking to the Senate or the, the New Republic, whatever that chamber is, that he's talking about his cloning research and how, you know, he just wants to do good for the galaxy. So they set him back up to be, you know, a nice guy. He gives the story about his mom passing away and needing a, an organ transplant and that he wanted. But he sets all this information up that like, you know, I'm I'm here to do good in the galaxy. And you sort of root for him. And then I saw all these parallels with like uh, Cyril, that he's he lives in this amnesty Ew. house and he slow down here, Joey. I'm going. You <laughs> ask me the question. But he's kind of beaten down and he's trying to like find a, his place in this new era post empire, post war. And they sort of make you feel for him a little bit as this episode continues to do. You're not quite sure if his motivations are sound or not. He's not continuing his research, but he kind of wants to but he's not allowed to from the New Republic. So he's going to do it behind their back. And he doesn't really want to go behind the New Republic, but he is eventually emboldened by that therapy droid that if this is the right thing to do, that should supersede like all the rules, right? And the droid kind of gives him permission to go back to his research. And they kind of frame that like, well, maybe he can continue to do good for the New Republic. And Kane is also kind of on board in influencing that. So they set up a lot right away especially, you know, in regards to the cloning, because that's his background. So again, weird to reintroduce this guy we haven't spent a lot of time with, and we're kind of just getting to know him. What did you think of his reintroduction? Were you excited to see him? I've been shaking my head this whole time. We're going to have to either put gifs of us or sound effects in to see when the other is physically reacting to something the other is saying. We can put the Death Star alarm in. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I don't like anything you just said. There, I said it. Usually I'm like, that's very interesting. I never thought of that. Or I love everything you just said. Well, listen, today is a new day and I don't like anything you just said. It's not you, Royce. It's the show. I mean, I love this episode, but we're going to get into all of this. What's the right thing to do? This episode made me so mad and that question makes me so mad. And the way Star Wars on purpose handles this question makes me mad. I don't think... Any of them are doing the right thing. I think that there is no right thing to do here. And like Pershing only is like, I'm here to protect the child. When it comes to a point in time where that's what kind of he has to do in order to maybe survive to the next step. I took more notes during what you were saying about what you were saying that I have to now add to all of this, right? So buckle up. Taking care of the child that came at a very convenient time for him when Moff Gideon's regime might have been under attack and he needed to survive. The way Star Wars handles all of this, the way that the people within this galaxy rationalize what they want to do as the right thing to do, it's just part of Star Wars at this time with 
Kanan and the Bendu approaching this ancient being to be on your side in a war. Ray and Luke, and now Pershing and the New Republic, all what is the right thing to do in order to like only further their goals, whether they're good or bad. I think everyone I just mentioned is coming at it from a very arrogant standpoint. And we'll see other characters do that in this episode as we go on. Other than that, I was interested in being reintroduced to the character, seeing where it's going. Cloning's becoming more and more of this theme that is spread throughout of these different Star Wars. We're also like talking about it in our Bad Batch episodes. Go catch them if you're not listening or watching them. So it's really interesting to bring like another cloning scientist into this and and kind of tie everything together. Probably the only thing we haven't seen anything about cloning in it was Andor from what I can remember. They had clone troopers. Were there clone? Oh, well, yeah, I guess we had a flashback with clone troopers. Yeah, so you're right. Anyway, uh, I like being reintroduced to the character. I'm passionately angry at... uh, You're not a Pershing stan. No, I'm not. I don't think he's doing the right thing. I think he's rationalizing what he wants to do as the right thing so that he can just... so that he can rationalize doing it. I mean, not... Be I said that very redundantly, but I just think that that is what's happening. I think he might have a little postpartum depression from you know working in the Empire. There was a scene where all PTSD, the amnesty, yeah. the amnesty house people were talking about like what they missed about the Empire, and he immediately was like, "Well, I don't like the Empire," but yeah. uh, of course he doesn't. He was working under duress, and now he's not. Maybe he's not supposed to work on his research, and he seemed like he was ready to give that up until Kane M sixty eight pushes him into it. So he was kind of ready. It seemed like he made a case to the New Republic Senate or whatever that was. And they told him, you can't do this. The therapy droid said not to do it. It wasn't until he was seduced by the dark side, if you will, to break the rules. And that sort of fed into his his state of mind at that time, trying to find his new place in this world. So I think he was trying to do the right thing, but then he ended up Joey, this is going to get tough. I'm trying to not react <laughs> to your reactions, but he's trying to fit into the he's trying to fit into the new world and that's what happens. And this is what we're going to talk about. Like where do you fall on the line? And he wanted to just be a good citizen of the New Republic. He was enjoying being on Coruscant, learning about the world there. Like he was even listening to the audiobook of the history of Coruscant, which I thought was weird that this scientist wouldn't know about that, but he seemed like he was just kind of going to adapt to the new world until this character said, hey, why don't you do some shady stuff with me and brought him down the path of the dark side. I don't know. You're not, I don't know if you're giving him enough credit there. I understand he's a, a character that's tricky to walk that line. So in the end, he gets wiped anyway. So he may get what he deserves by your eyes. I don't know. We can talk about that too. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, wish that whatever they're doing to him upon even an enemy. We don't see eye to eye on this character. Like, I don't think he's necessarily trying to be a good guy. I more saw this as like, he took any reason, he took any little catalyst to further his desires, to further his own research. Kane came in and provided that. Great. But also, it didn't take much, right? It, it, I, I just think like... You don't think the story about his mom was real though? Because that was kind of the, the setup for it. I do, but I think that, sure, the discussion that he has in the beginning of, about his mom, if if simple cloning had been a thing on his planet, they would have been able to save his mom, which is very heartfelt, very like, obviously, they're gaining empathy from the audience in that. And I did feel that. But I also think that he's using that to rationalize 
continuing his research, which he wants to do. For some reason, I'm not convinced that this character is a good guy or wanted to be a good guy. I guess I don't have like a moment or anything that... Actually, I think I do know why, and I think it's because of the rest of this episode. By the end of this episode, I didn't feel like anyone was a good guy, and I felt like that was the point of the episode. So maybe I'll bring it back to Pershing as we go on, but it's interesting that we're not seeing... We don't completely see eye to eye on this character, for sure. They give you so much information of why you might look at him as the underdog in this particular Coruscant plotline that, again, with Cyril, he's working in that office and he's later like, come on, just do your work and keep your head down, power through. And he's wondering about, oh, but we're going to delete this old tech. And they're like, yeah, delete it. Old Empire tech. And he's like, but it's useful. It's okay. Get rid of it. And he used to work for the Empire and he's proud of some of his work and he's got to get rid of that. You know, it's, it's the Bad Batch thing. I don't know if everyone listening is caught up, but this is old tech and you're expired and you're expendable and we're moving on. And they give him a number. They don't even call him Pershing. They call him L-52. So I'm coming from it. I don't really know how I feel about Pershing in general, but they make you feel that this character is being battened down in the New Republic, that the hypocrisy there of the New Republic sort of being just as oppressive of the empire. And Pershing, unfortunately, got caught up in kind of both of those things. We don't know how he got forced to do the cloning in the Empire, but I would imagine that was under duress to some degree there because that's every scientist in the Empire. You're Galen Erso yeah. or whatnot. Maybe not every, but that's a theme. And I still see that also carrying through in this episode. They use him. The New Republic uses him in this episode. So whether or not he's a good guy or not, there's a lot of writing to set up that like he's the underdog. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm on board with him being... The evil underdog under the Empire or the New Republic. But when they first introduced the number thing, I felt like maybe they were setting that up to keep some Imperial officers away from others. Like you don't allow them to know who, what the other names are, who they worked with and stuff like that. So that there wasn't any like conflict among them or anything like that, you know. But then they stick him with someone who used to be there was obviously no background check done to ensure that he would not be with any other Imperial officer that he knew. So then my whole idea about the numbering being maybe somewhat worthwhile went out the window. Like, no, the New Republic is just kind of not good and they're numbering these. How do you expect anyone to integrate into your society this way? Like you send them to a reintegration camp or whatever that's called, and then you put them in amnesty housing and then you don't even like they're just a number. Well, I think that might have been a little bit of a plant because she was clearly setting up Pershing the whole time. So I don't that might have been something that the New Republic intended that we want to yeah. get. We want Pershing to show us where this cloning stuff is, and then we'll take out Pershing. That might have been part of it, you know? It might not have just been totally by accident they wound up in the same house. Although yeah. she does seem kind of taken aback by that. Yeah, it was that was very strange. I was thinking like maybe another reason why you're so why you're on board with Pershing and I'm not is because I love Katie O'Brien and this character Elia Kane or whatever she said. She's her the first bad guy, was. is she not? I love her. I think she might be my first like big problematic crush. Katie O'Brien is a great Instagram follower. She seems to be a great human being. Go follow her. But this character, I really love her. Let's talk about whether or not she's the bad guy because you just mentioned. Was she a plant by the New Republic? Part of the question by the end of the episode is like, who is she working for? Do you think she's like 
working for the New Republic? Or do you think she's still like holding to somebody in the Empire? This is the classic 24 double, double cross. Okay. <laughs> 24 did this many times where you think a character is a good character and then they actually cross the good guys. But then you find out at the last minute they were crossing the bad guys while they were crossing the good guys and mm. everyone lives happily after. In this case, what I think is happening is Kane. I think she's still loyal to Gideon. Because mm. when they're at the Amnesty House, they said, oh, you worked for Gideon? And she was like, I don't like to think about that anymore. And I think that's probably what's happening, that she's snuck into the New Republic and she's an agent for them. And somehow, I mean, maybe even the people that captured them on the Star Destroyer aren't even New Republic people. That could be even an, another set of, oh, this is going way too Roy 24 with the conspiracy. Royce's crazy left field theories. I don't know if the, when they got arrested, if those were, I mean, it must be New Republic people because they brought in the Mon Calamari person. That seemed above, above board. But she then turns the dial up at the end. She goes straight evil, dude. That wasn't the protocol. It was clearly a protocol to do like a minimum mind wipe. And she went maximum with it. That to me is like, I'm going to tie up this loose end for you, Moff Gideon, for you, Emperor Palpatine, or whoever else is pulling the strings, the warlord that has the ships. We don't know who's pulling all these strings. So I don't think that she's totally loyal to the New Republic, but she's playing the game. That's for certain, which is not new to Star Wars. I'm making this parallel to 24, but that was also in Andor with the ISB agent that was working with Luthen and working with, I forget the other lady that he was like the assistant for in the ISB, but that's not out of the realm of possibility that we have these kind of spies going on. I'm the spy. That's a little, is that Rise or Last Jedi? Whatever one that is, that's a little hops for you. <laughs> Here's an interesting question that you and I did not discuss in our brief before this episode. We did talk about not going off on tangents because there was so much, but here's a tangent. At any point in the episode, did you think who's manipulating who? Did you think that Pershing could be manipulating Kane and that would be like a a way for the episode to go. Was that ever on your mind? No, I thought Pershing just got caught up. Wrong place, wrong time. Interesting. At first, I didn't know. He got the box of the travel mm -hmm. biscuits or whatever. And so what came to my mind was, oh, he's got a secret admirer. Who's it going to be? <laughs> and it, it was Kane, obviously. And she reveals that later that, oh, I go to the Star Destroyers all the time and steal stuff. That's how I got this. She builds that character up in Pershing. She says, you mm. can do this. They're moving through the train. You can jump to the next car. You can do it. They're going to jump off the train to the shipyard. She says a similar thing, like, just do it. I believe in you. And she is constantly building up his confidence. And she keeps saying, trust me, trust me. There's a lot of like, okay, maybe she's a good guy. She's like trying to do all this good for the New Republic, but they're doing it all shady behind, behind closed doors. Pershing's getting caught up in it because he loves that reinforcement. She built such a good bond with him in like a very short period of time here. Oh, there's another scene where he goes, I'm not good at this. And she's like, oh, you will be in time. You'll get better at it. So I was like, oh, they're going to do more of these behind the scenes, you know, uh, shady mm. missions here. And I think he just got caught up in that he was manipulated by Kane. You got to see through the Instagram filter, Joey. There were some moments throughout the episode where I was like, I, he might be manipulating her, you know, and that would be an interesting direction for this show to go. Like they're lulling us into this false sense of security where they're trying to get us to believe that Pershing is the good guy. But what if it turns around and he's the bad guy? That's That entered my mind a couple of times. I'd be curious if anyone listening, if you ever saw it that way as well or thought that as well. But yes, I have a crush on the problematic queen, Elia Kane, and I'm not afraid to say it. 
What was your initial reaction to the man at the beginning of the episode? He approaches Pershing after Pershing's talk, and he says something like, I was almost drafted, you know. And his companion says, that was the Empire. And he says, oh, Empire, Rebels, New Republic, I can't keep it straight. I thought that was kind of twofold. Probably a lot of people watching, as soon as they brought up cloning and that New Republic, that the casual fan is probably going to be like, what's going on? Is this the Empire? Mm. Where are we in the timeline? And so I thought that was maybe a little joke, kind of fourth wall breaking to be like, I don't know where we are. Who knows what's going on here? But that also clues in anyone watching that like, let everybody know that we're in a different timeline than you're used to, which I thought was an interesting device to do that. But yeah, I think that's that leads into this whole hypocrisy of the right and the wrong that all these factions kind of suck, that no one is truly right. You know, and when you break down to the rebels and you've got people like Saw Gerrera and Mon Mothma or Luthen that are all, quote unquote, you know, fighting the empire, but in their own sort of, you know, different ways. Like you said, that's what this show is asking us to look at here. And it kind of is a little uncomfortable, even when you're looking at the good guys or what you think are the good guys, you know? The rebels yeah. blow up the Death Star and there it's like a million people on the Death Star or whatever. You ever think about the contractors that were building the, the Death Star? Whatever the, <laughs> whatever the clerk's reference is there. The innocent yeah. contractors that blow up with it. So no one's truly innocent and no one's truly good or bad. No one's ever really gone. No one's ever really right either, it would seem. I just kind of read that as like they're setting up where they are in the timeline and that, by the way, all these people are flawed. That's so interesting. I really love that perspective of the casual fan, of them setting, like putting a time stamp on for the casual fan. I did not consider that at all. My initial thought was this is some elitist a-hole who is not affected by the different political systems in play. A lot of like what we saw in Andor, where like the elite, it doesn't matter to them who is ruling. Like uh, the guy in... uh, My Mothma's husband. Kind of, yeah. Very like Perry character. And it like DJ says in The Last Jedi, like there's no... It doesn't matter what side you're on. But to these people, it really doesn't matter what side they're on because they are the elite. And so my initial thought of this guy was like, he's an a-hole. How could you say Empire Rebels, New Republic makes no difference to me. But then the show went on to show us that he's right, which also kind of pissed me off. I want to believe in good versus evil. Like we go into these fantasy worlds thinking that that's kind of going to be, well, it's just another label we're putting on it, right? When things are changing. The idea that the New Republic also does not really understand what the right thing to do is. What you said is one of my last notes. No one knows what the right thing to do is. And all of these people and the New Republic are just rationalizing their choices, saying that it's the right thing to do just so they can do the thing. You're mentioning the rebels like Saw Gerrera and Luthen, and I'll go back to Kanan. I love Kanan. He's like tied for my favorite Jedi, but to have the arrogance of approaching someone like the Bendu and asking for help in a war, it's like all of these like rationalizations and arrogance. Your right thing to do is the right thing to do. I guess that that's, that's the whole thing there. Each situation plays to who the character really is, from Kane to Pershing to the Twi'lek at the end of the episode, who, as they're getting to mind-wipe Pershing, says this is the right thing to do for the New Republic It's all rationalization, and it's all the wrong thing to do. Hey, this comes all the way back to A New Hope when Luke and Obi-Wan 
are talking in Obi-Wan's hut. And he's like, I can take you to Anchorage tomorrow, but, you know, you can find a speeder there, maybe. <laughs> Obi-Wan's like, I'm getting too old for this. I need your help here, you know? She needs your help, Luke. You got to step up to the occasion. Luke tells him, like, no, I'll, I'll just drive you. I'll drop you off. I'll drop you at the bus stop. <laughs> Obi-Wan says, you must do what you feel is right, of course. So even Obi-Wan is like, you've got to figure it out for yourself, Luke. Yes, and then Luke makes the right choice in terms of fighting... The battle of good versus evil, which there was a clear definition. There is not here. There is no good. I don't think there is any good here. We're seeing the flaws of the New Republic, and we're seeing that, like the elitist a-hole in the beginning of the episode says, there's no difference between the New Republic and the Empire. They are oppressing people, taking away their names and giving them numbers. They're destroying science and technology. It goes back to another theme we talked about in the Bad Batch, where like science and technology are the tools of the enemy. In here, it's except the ones that are torture devices. Like Pershing can't further the science. They're destroying the imperial tech just because it's imperial tech. Like that's what the guy says to Pershing at the beginning of the episode, which is extremely maddening. Like, no, don't use that. It's the empire, but we can use it to like save lives. Well, we're going to destroy that, but we're going to keep the mind flare. That is the wrong thing to do. So I feel like I've gotten very worked up this episode. I wish I had a heart rate monitor. Maybe we should start hooking ourselves up to heart rate monitors as we record these episodes. But it was just a lot. There's also this kind of cloud of what we've been building up to. So we, we've been fighting the good fight. We've been along with these characters who were fighting the good fight, like Luke and Rey, Cassian Andor and Mon Mothma. How do you feel about this is what they were fighting for? We're rooting for Andor and we're rooting for Mon Mothma and we're rooting for the destruction of the Empire. But now this is in the wake of that. This is what is formed in that oppressive, the vacuum from oppression once the Empire is destroyed. What do you think about that? Well, we were not given a character in this episode that was clearly the Obi-Wan Kenobi or the Luke Skywalker that you, you are them. Every character in this, you didn't necessarily want to be them. Right. I think you could find bits and pieces of yourself in all of these people, taking advantage of a scenario or wanting to pursue your dreams. You know, Pershing said he always wanted to be a scientist. And I, dude, I always wanted to be a musician. I've always known that. And of course, Kane says, I, I didn't have a chance to figure that out. She's been in this fight since she was six years old. You know, so exactly. some people weren't given a choice. Some people had a choice and you live a different life because of it. That's what's making this a really great episode to talk about for 40 minutes here. And to come to these conclusions, I don't think is necessarily the point, but certainly a lot to dive into here. Also, you know what? Yeah, we have been talking about this for 40 minutes. So are you are going to have the Mandalorian in your Mandalorian show. Are, are you <laughs> or are you not? Yes. Let's transition into The Mandalorian. So we open back up where we left off with Bo and Din in the cave. As we find out, Din was unconscious and didn't see the mythosaur. So that's a thing. That was a hypothetical from our last podcast, by the way. We called it, or potentially called it, it. Yeah, but we also like thought it might bring them together. So not on that. And then we leave, and for some reason, Kalvala is getting bombed, which... We can also get into speculation on, but I think there's more important things to focus on. So they have to run back to the armorer and have Din prove that he bathed in the living waters. Another speculative thing that we said on the last episode was like, 
will the armorer believe Din? And will they accept Bo? Like we were talking about the acceptance of Bo-Katan and I said, no, because the armorer thinks that Bo's the reason Mandalore is cursed. So I was wrong. How about those subverted expectations there? Yeah. Take that. <laughs> so what did you think about that whole reunion and that whole scene with him like being redeemed? Did you actually think that they were going to allow him to be redeemed? Yeah. So I got a couple interesting notes. So I'll rewind a little bit and I'll get to it. Uh, number one, I love that we picked up right where we left off. I said that so many times on our last few podcasts, but I love that. And then, okay, we have to get to the covert and then we pan over to Pershing's. I think if this episode started with Pershing, you would have turned a lot of people off. It's like episode four of Andor where we go to Coruscant and it's like a different storyline on different characters. So kudos writers to give a little bit of Grogu and Mando time. And then they're off to the covert. We see Pershing for a very long time, but then we catch up with them at the end of the episode. So when they're talking to, or actually when they land, they start walking up to the cave and Paz Vizsla is there. And they're playing the Mandalorian theme in the background, the doo-doo. But if you listen closely, it's either, I couldn't figure out exactly what it was and I didn't rewind, but it's either down one octave on the piano or they've inverted it. It's kind of hard to hear like the root note, what octave it's in when it's that low. But it doesn't sound like doo doo. It sounds like doo doo. It goes backwards. Mm. And I picked up on just the arrangement being different. But if you want to talk thematically about that, what direction are we going in? Is this the normal Mandalorian? Dun, 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 dun. It's the mm. same notes, but it just goes down an octave. And I thought that was a, a very unique moment, whether or not there's an intentional theme behind it. But like, maybe, you know, we're crashing, you know, Mayday. Like, <laughs> we're going down. This is not, not going to go the way you think, maybe. And they meet up with Paz, and he is so pushy. Oh, yeah, sure. We'll see if you actually were at the waters. You weren't in the mines. The mines collapsed during the purge. He's so sure of himself there. But he says, well, we'll see. I thought there was going to be a little bit more of a pushback with Bo-Katan, but he was like, oh, you were cast out. They remind again the audience that Bo-Katan is not in with the covert. Din did that as they were coming into the planet as well, though, that, hey, keep your helmet on. So uh, this goes this goes well. They yeah. celebrate the old ways. So she agrees to play along. He gets redeemed. I mean, that's what he set out to do, and he did it. That's what they even set up in Book of Boba Fett. We knew that he wanted to be redeemed. He achieves that. He's welcomed back in. That was interesting that they had some way of testing the pH balance of the water there or something. And they knew that it was the Mines of Mandalore. And then, boom, Bo-Katan, bonus redemption. She is also <laughs> redeemed and welcomed into the cult. Wow, that was totally unexpected because you had said that her and the armorer butt heads. And the armorer, we were kind of worried how she would feel about this redemption and going to Mandalore. And she totally accepts everything. And to the point that she says by creed, you are also redeemed since you bathed in the waters. And have you removed your helmet? She says no. And all of this right-wrong confliction comes all up again in a different sort of manner. Does Bo-Katan want to continue to walk the way of the Mandalore? She says she wasn't, but she was bathing in the waters and had not removed her helmet. So she's in the clan. And they literally say, so cliche, you are one of us, one of us, one of us, which is what this is the way is. But they say one of us. I didn't hear her say this is the way in the audio. So I don't know if that was an intentional thing that she didn't just repeat everything back, but she could be in. And she saw the mythosaur, but Din didn't. But she doesn't have the Darksaber. But she's in now. She is redeemed and Din is redeemed. And they're a family of sorts, maybe not a happy family. But oh my goodness, that is so interesting on its own. 
this was not a Mandalorian-heavy episode, the character Mandalorian, the history of Mandalorians, but continuing that thread of the story, it is now even more complex than it was before. Din didn't see the Mythosaur. Bo is now part of the clan as well. Ooh. Oh, I've got a couple of things. One real quick left field conspiracy theory. In one of the previous episodes, maybe it's the first episode, we see the armorer pour a vial into one of her forges and it illuminates like that. Hmm. So she has some water from the living waters. Whether, again, like I said last episode, she is going there and getting it somehow and doesn't, like, she for some reason doesn't want other people to know that Mandalore is not cursed or whatever. That's a left field conspiracy theory. But she, that's why she knows when she pours it in that that's what it is. We saw her do that a few episodes ago. Cool. I didn't catch that. Cool note. Yeah. A note about, say, about the armor saying, by creed, you are now forgiven or whatever the line is she says to Bo. I took that more as like, I can't step back on these ideals that I'm pushing forward in this instance or else I would. By the definitions that I have in place here, by leading this cult, I have to forgive you. Not like, welcome aboard, more like, well, I don't have a choice or else people will question my rules, you know? Hmm. So it's very, it's it's all feeling more and more culty. And we're talking about the idea of what what is the right thing to do Looking back, that's been so much of all of the Mandalorian. Din believes that the right thing to do is the way. This is the way. That's obviously the right thing to do. These systems, like the Empire, like the New Republic, like the Children of the Watch, that are set up to give permission to these characters of what they want to do. They're giving them permission to do what they want to do so that they feel like it's the right thing to do. And that is what's happening here with Din. And I think that's what we're seeing happen here with Bo. Bo needs to find a place to fit in. Cults prey on people who need to fit in. They don't fit in anywhere else. Like you're saying, she saw the Mythosaur, so maybe she's back on board with Mandalore. All of her Mandalorians left her. She needs a place to fit in. And she's also very familiar with Death Watch. She's been in Death Watch, so this might all feel very familiar to her. Similar with Pershing, that like, hey, I'll just fall back into my old ways. The parallels here, it's so smart to bookend the episode this way because the parallels here between what's going on on Coruscant and what's going on with the Mandalorians is very similar. But then also characterized, we have Kane, who is part of this organization, whether it's the Empire or the New Republic, and she's very devoted to it. And we have Pershing, who's being brought into one. And it's the same thing happening with Din and Bo. And there's an incredible parallel there. And Kane even says... She never had a chance to figure out what she wanted to be. And the Empire gave her that. You're talking about choice before. She didn't make the chance, but the Empire provided a situation for her to be forced to make. I mean, there's a whole thing I could go into here about choice. Situational choice. There's a lot of parallels here between these two storylines with a, a system that makes you feel like you fit in because it gives you permission to do what you want to do under the guise of it being the right thing to do. It's it's heavy, man. <laughs> I still think Din's got a little bit... Uh, obviously, they they were both redeemed, Bo and Din, but I think Din's still got a little free will and free thought going on where when he comes back to the covert and Paz is pushing back on Mandalore being a thing, he's like, dude, those are lies. They're telling us those lies to keep us in exile. So even though, you know, Din is loyal to the clan there, he at least is looking out to the future of what they could become. 
Whereas Paz is like, nope, it's destroyed. He's not even bothering to seek out the truth where Din is. And I think that's another thing to keep in mind that I love the line of you're walking the line of the Mandalore because there's a little bit of like Mm. metaphor with that as well, whether you are on the line or not on the line. And Din is walking the line, but he's still seeing like the what could be. And I think that's such an interesting point in his character. And Bo in that period of time is over it. She's not seeing the light, but she's seen the mythosaur and she's been redeemed. So again, and they play that theme music upside down. It's like, where are we going from here? Yeah. Again, the cliche Krypton to Alderaan. What's next? What's next? Wild speculation. Yeah, I would argue that Din is not seeing enough. He's still so indoctrinated into the cult. He's seen more than Paz, though. Yeah, but like who is... Din says their lies they're telling us to keep us... They tell us these lies to keep us in exile. That's a paraphrase. But, but who's they? The armorer? Well, you're going to be redeemed by her. You're obviously holding her up on a pedestal. Well, and that could be the future conversation. Why aren't we going back there? You know, why didn't you tell us? I've been there. That could be another, yeah. you know, butting heads moment where somebody else starts to take control within that clan. I hope so. Man, do we have time for three more hours of podcast? And there's too much to speculate on. There's a lot of whys that they asked in this episode that I I really... It's almost not worth speculating on or getting into because it would just be too much. There's a lot to unpack and there's there's still more to unpack. Even the stuff that we did unpack, we're not done unpacking. So listeners, we would love to hear what you are thinking about the Mandalorian season so far. I don't know where it's going. I didn't know last week. I know even less this week. I think that's part of the theme they're trying to throw down in the writing of this series but I'm enjoying the ride. I'm sure you are too. Wherever you like to social media, make sure to leave us some comments. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the end of the show today and make sure to tune in next week for more Mandalorian coverage. We're also going to have a Bad Batch review for this week's episode coming out soon as well. So make sure to look out for that. I have been Royce. I'm in love with Elia Kane. And we've been Krypton Krypton 2.